0: All aboard the MBIT podcast with Seamus Madan.
1: Today, we have to talk about climate change. There's more carbon dioxide in our air than any time in human history, and it could end up being irreversible if corrective action isn't taken. Today, Josh Felzer joins the podcast to discuss his new firm Climactic investing in enterprise and mobility solutions. So first off, Josh was the founder of Spinner, which he co-founded with his business partner, Dave Samuel. It was one of the first online music and entertainment services that he sold to AOL for $320 million. He also co-founded Crackle with Dave and then sold that company to Sony for $65 million. After being in the entrepreneurial world for quite a while, he decided to launch his own fund, Freestyle, investing in companies like Airtable and Patreon. He recently left to launch his own firm, Climactic, investing in climate solutions. First off, Josh, thanks for joining. It's a pleasure to have you on.
0: Great to be here. Do I do the
1: product placement now? Uh, sure. <laughs> Spindrift. Is that a company you've invested in or?
0: No, no. Although once I tweeted about them and they sent me a case of
1: Spindrift. So, you know. Hey, free sparkling water. Might as well. Exactly. Uh, so I want to start this probably earlier than most of the podcasts you've done on before. Instead of starting with your career, I want to first start off, what's the earliest thing I would need to know about you to understand who you are and everything that you've accomplished?
0: wow. So way, way back, I was 17 and I wanted to live away from home for the summer. And I talked my parents into letting me go. So stupid of them to let me do this, but let me go live for the summer at Ocean City, Maryland, which is you know kind of like a destination but i lived on first street which is the worst part of ocean city and i shared a one-bedroom apartment with eight guys and my bed was literally on the on the on the porch but i had my own bed but it was on the porch so i slept outside every night and i had probably seven jobs that summer you know from like school self-screening t-shirts to i was a fry cook at the north of preachers and Basically I just did I did what I needed to to get by and have a great summer. I just did it all on my own. I was 17, my parents had no idea and I I just went to Ocean City without any knowledge and without a job of course and I managed to to you know get whatever job I needed to and I had an amazing summer but I was very self-directed, self-sufficient. I never asked my parents for money. I definitely did things that I'm not proud of that summer, but that's part of being 17 <laughs> and in Ocean City, Maryland, there was one time when I had. This is kind of true of me, but I, I had a job at Arthur Treacher's on the boardwalk, and my boss was really mean, like really mean, and 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 she yelled a lot. And and I I met this runaway on this you know just on the street of Ocean City, and he I got him a job there, and and at some point like he she was yelling at me, and she was yelling at him, and I, I never really liked authority very much, and so. In the middle of, of like the busiest time, he and I had orchestrated this. We we stood up and we quietly brought chairs over to the ceiling. He was really tall over the ceiling. And we sprayed, we quit in whipped cream on the ceiling, <laughs> and then we walked out. And and I guess that says a lot about me. Just one, like how I got how I survived that summer and got the jobs, how I didn't like authority and and like wasn't about to stand for it. And 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 I guess I've been pretty independent <laughs> ever since. And it's not surprising that I kind of became an entrepreneur first.
1: Yeah, I know when I was early on a long time ago in elementary school, I was buoyed a lot by the other students and the teachers. I think since then, that experience has given yeah. me a lot of drive to be able to do some of the things I do today. And it also kind of gave me that a little bit similar experience with authority figures where I feel like if I'm being disrespected or Dish treated in any sort of way. I just get immediately don't respect them at all. And I don't like to stand for that. So it's kind of similar in that yeah. way. And hey, we were both 17. But now let's transition yeah. into business. You were a manager for business development for Fox. And you also yeah. worked at Sky Television. What was it about those experiences that compelled you to start your own company, Spinner?
0: Well, I mean I'd always wanted to I'd always wanted to work in media. And and so I got this like again, like most things I got in my life. Fox was interviewing at Harvard, Wharton, Stanford. I didn't go to any of those schools. I went to Duke and I had to fight my way into the interview and I remember them saying, "Well, you didn't go to the like the schools that we went to. Why would we, you know, the people that were hiring?" And I'm like, "Well, I just know my shit." And so they interviewed me and I did and I, I got the job at Fox, you know, even the job at Fox was a very like, it, it was as good as you made it. And so I remember I worked for a man who is now my good friend, Strauss Zelnick. He was the youngest ever chief of a studio. He ran the studio at Fox, 20th Century Fox. And then my other boss was Chase Carey, who ran the network and other businesses. And and I can tell you a funny story that has nothing to do with me as a founder, but but it's a really cool story. And next to my office, was this guy, Mel Brooks, who I don't know if you know Mel Brooks, but a lot of people know him. He's a like a foundation in, in comedy. And like he he wrote, he created Young Frankenstein, which is an old movie, and blazing saddles and all these famous like comedic successes. And I would walk by his office every day and he would, he would yell at me in a nice way. He would say, Hey, kid, come in here. <laughs> I'd walk in his office, he'd say, What do you do? And I would say, Well, I work for Strauss and Chase, and I do this. He's like, Okay, get out of here. And then the next day he would call me and he'd say, he'd say kid, come in here. what do you do? And it took me like five or six times. And I finally went to him and said, you're totally messing with me, aren't you? he's like, now you got Hollywood.
1: <laughs>
0: first, first lesson. But, you know, even at Fox, I had to be, you know, it was up to me to like, they're all a bunch of us who work there in business development. And I wanted to work on the coolest projects. And so I had to be like self-started to get those deals and and to not be stuck with the stuff no one wanted. And so I just was really good at that. I ended up getting an assignment in the UK where I worked for Sky Television. That was all on me, and I maneuvered my way into into that opportunity. And then they ultimately hired me and transferred me from LA to London. And it was really in London where I worked for Sky that I kind of got my first taste of technology because in in the UK at that time, there was a lot of interactivity around television. There was something called like, teletext. And the TVs all came with this text. And you could kind of like hit a button on your remote and you would you could see like deals on on travel and and uh, last minute deals on lots of things. And it was kind of the first time I'd seen interactivity applied to media. And so I decided to kind of like focus in on that and help Sky build out its interactive offering. I saw what it could do. And I'm like, I've got to work in this two-way interactive media world as my career. And so I had a step in between where I worked for a telco, one of the big telephone companies, US West. But that to me was just a stepping stone to do what I ultimately did, was to kind of get involved in the internet and and the creation of the internet in the in the 90s. I mean, I, I was lucky to have part of the digitization of everything. Like now, like, you know, you look at, at what one of your previous guests is Mark Cuban and Mark and I started companies in the streaming space back then, and mine was Spinner, and he was his broadcast. But we allowed you to kind of like see what you were listening to, which sounds so. Then it was like, what? How do you see what you're listening to? It's radio, but we made that happen in in all the ways that you need to, and that kind of kicked my my career off in the in the world of the internet.
1: Yeah, you mentioned you wanted to keep working for and doing cooler projects at the companies you were at. Why not yeah. keep rising the ranks? Why'd you want to become an entrepreneur?
0: So that first question you asked that we both answered, like I don't like authority. Like I don't like authority doesn't respect me and I found that in most like corporate environments, like you got to play politics and I suck at politics. And so I just didn't want to do that anymore. I wanted to be my own boss. I wanted to to like create a world of no politics and where like good ideas are surfaced and and you get rewarded for how you bring those ideas to life and and in, and in big corporations you're like you're you're like you have to bow down to the authority. And I just, I, when I was bad at it and I just didn't want to do it.
1: Spinner and Crackle were both one of the first music streaming and video broadcasting services of the time. How important is it to be first when it comes to new technologies and the development of new technologies?
0: I mean, there's, and there's, everything's a derivative of everything else, right? Everything is, and even though I was first on the internet platform, with a radio-like service we created from scratch, there were other companies that you could kind of buy music online and you and even what broadcast was doing, you could listen to radio that was rebroadcasting terrestrial radio stations. And, and so everything is a, a derivative of everything else. And so I would say nothing is totally new, but there is value to being first on a platform. And so I was the first to do what we did. Spinner was the first to do what it did on the platform that is the internet. And we were a rocket ship. Like we just made all the right decisions. We got lucky, and we were a rocket ship all the way through till the end, till we sold it to AOL. With Grouper, which became Prackle, we struggled more. Like we had to pivot in the middle of the process. So we were the first at Grouper to figure to make it easy for people to watch each other's videos. So if I went to Burning Man, which I did, I had no way to share those videos with my friends and family except through we like a really tough to use FTP server. And we were the first to bring that, to make that mass market, but it still wasn't big enough. And so even though we, first, we had to pivot to what we ultimately did, which was a more public video sharing solution, kind of like YouTube and that played, but even that we were we were playing catch up with YouTube. So we had to sell it. So I think it's it's being being the first on a platform has a lot of value. If you can not only make the right decisions, but recognize which decisions are the most important to get right, that second thing a lot of founders fall down on. They try and make the right decisions on everything. But if you can recognize which decisions are the most important to get right, you'll spend more time on it and hopefully most likely have a higher probability of being right.
1: In sidetracking just a little bit, we're going through a big innovation for technology, especially with the development of artificial intelligence. What companies do you think could come out on top?
0: So I'm focused more on, when it comes to AI, I'm definitely focused more on climate tech than trying to figure that out for general tech. This is my job to figure it out for climate tech. We did a market map that we released recently of like the top companies using AI to, in the world of climate and I'm biased, right? So so I'm going I'm biased towards some of our own companies, but I think you know, WeaveGrid, for example, if you have an EV and you charge your EV, which most of us do, WeaveGrid helps you connect to the utility and figure out the optimal time to charge your, your EV, right? You don't figure it out, but WeaveGrid figures it out with AI. WeaveGrid then is supplies that data to the phone company, and the phone company then can actually plot out their forecasts for. EV, EV electricity demand out months and months based on just the small, the few data points they have today from the thousands of folks that are using the service. And it's that AI layer that looks at the usage today and then is able to predict the usage in the future that is so valuable that WeaveGrid's doing. That's what utilities are paying for. So I think WeBGrid's doing great work here. Um climate AI is doing something, another one of our portfolio companies. And they're really doing great work at figuring out the impact of weather models 10 years out on agricultural products. So if you're McDonald's and you're the potato buyer for McDonald's, you're able now to look out 10 years and figure out the right mix of farmers to buy from based on an interpretation of those models. And so I think that AI applied to data in the climate space is still underserved, but you're gonna see it. I think AI will play a, a very large role in whether we're able to save our planet or not, right? For humans at least. And I'm excited to see how it's appearing today, even though it's still, as you know, very early in scalable applications of AI at the enterprise level.
1: In stepping back into the shoes, when you were one of those founders, you led your team doing something different than arguably most of the other leaders at the time. You led your team with persuasion instead of ordering your employees what to do. What impact do you think that had on the development of both Spinner and uh, Grouper, which is now Crackle?
0: I love that you pulled that, that, that nugget out of something that I wrote somewhere. So the first thing that it did is it made me feel less like a fraud. Like there's a thing... That a lot of CEOs have around imposter syndrome, like, what am I doing here in this role? And the more that you dictate, the more that you, the more you can actually feel that way. The more that you're you're having debates and and you're trying to convince, but also being open to the feedback from other people, the more you feel authentic, and the more authentic you feel, obviously, the less of that imposter syndrome, the less that's going to rear its head in your work. So I just felt authentic, like I was just being my authentic self, especially with Brackle. And you can't be your authentic self by dictating to everybody what they should and shouldn't do. Secondly, it does a thing that I hated about big corporations. Like if you're dictating, then you are the authority and you're telling people what to do and you're not open to other points of view. And so I think being open to other points of view and diversity that comes from that is a big part of, of kind of my success. And I think the success of a lot of folks, it is not the only way, right? There are plenty of examples of dictators like Jobs and others that... That have found success, but it, it definitely isn't my way. And so, and it also, I don't know how happy those people were. I don't know if jobs is actually happy. And, and I definitely, even though it was stressful, I, as a CEO, I actually was happy in my job in addition to, to being satisfied with my success.
1: Yeah. And before we go into venture capital, one last thing, you had revenue for a spinner of around 1.2 million. You yeah. told AOL that you'd sell for 351 million and 99 cents. Why that specific number?
0: So that, <laughs> I was a pretty good deal guy in my day and like still am, but, but I think what, what I'd figured out is that I had to, you know, when they first, they, we got this, this, like facts, believe it or not, a fax with an offer number on it. And I knew that that I had to, you know, obviously anchor high, and then we would end up negotiating. And I knew I had to get very specific numbers because otherwise they would know that what I was actually doing was like, you know, like just guessing. There's no justification for those numbers given our revenue. And our, like we were the, the most important of our kind in that moment, but our revenue was tiny. And so I just figured the more specificity I ha- I gave... They would think that one, I had another offer and two, that I knew what I was talking about. And so I did, I, we ended up at a number that was a compromise be- between a general number from them and another specific number from me. And so it kind of, it kind of worked out.
1: Yeah, they went, I believe they offered 300 then you counted with 320 and then that was okay. the deal. So now transitioning into Freestyle, you founded Freestyle Capital with your partner, Dave Samuel. What was that transition like from being an entrepreneur to VC, and have you ever wanted to go back to being a founder?
0: I mean, I always want to be a founder, but I'm not willing to pay the price. So after we sold Spinner, I actually, group it was a Grouper, after we sold Crackle, I had to really like figure out what I wanted to do next. And I think while I still had a desire to be an entrepreneur, I just, I couldn't take on that responsibility again. I think when grouper was so stressful, like it was by far the most stressful thing I've ever done to the point where I got sleep apnea. Like I I couldn't sleep more than, more than an hour and a half at a time. And you know, that's, you can't live like that. And so that went on for a year and I was trying to cure myself and I, and I couldn't figure it out. And. And, but at some point I met this professor, he led the sleep center at UCSF. And he's like, I believe that your sleep apnea is caused by stress and you need to figure out how to remove yourself from that stressful environment. And so at the time, the only way I could do it was not be a founder again, but I wanted to be as close to the founder world as I could be. Freestyle was as close as I could get, right? But being an early stage investor. And so Dave, Dave kind of felt the same way. Like, and so we decided to start Freestyle together. Helping founders was as close as I could be. I could get to being a founder without being one.
1: Gotcha. And you've invested in a lot of large companies over the years, including Airtable and Patreon. What do you think separates the successful companies between the unsuccessful ones?
0: I mean, some of it's luck. You need to have some luck involved. So, so Howie, the founder of Airtable, is our first intern at Freestyle. He went to Duke where I went to school. And and we got to know him. We got to know him over many, many years. And we didn't fund his first company, e We didn't think it was going to be a big success. And, and he ended up selling it for a small amount to Salesforce. But when he went to Salesforce, he actually studied Salesforce. He did it partially so he could study Salesforce and see which ideas might come out of that experience. And he came out of Salesforce. like, I see an opening for a the best of a database, the best of a spreadsheet, but in the cloud, collaborative and usable by everybody, right? That was the idea. And... So he started out with the right idea, but what he said to Dave and I is like, listen, I will take your money, but I have a choice if you're either going like launching really quickly and going after a specific vertical or creating a platform that would cut across every vertical. But to do that, it's going to take me three years and I need you not to pressure me for three years to actually generate revenue or to launch the product. And so he knew he had the right vision and he he brought on people around him that that supported his vision, including his investors. So he was able to go out and execute that vision without disruption or distraction. He made, like we talked about earlier, he knew which decisions were the right ones. Like it was the right decision to figure out whether to go after a vertical or go horizontal. And he recognized that and he made the right decision. So I think. And, and Howie never gave up, but it was easier once the product launched and people using it. But that three-year period of just product development, and you have to really have religion around your own vision, and he did. And so I think that, that how is that story is a great example of, of how to do it right. He also, the the pro, he hired amazing people around him. But the process, his approach to fundraising was, I'm going to basically raise money when I'm approached and they make it really easy. So I'm not distracted from my main job. And almost every time I raised money, it was like that. It was like someone approached me. He's like, I'll do this if it's really easy. And they made it easy and he kept doing it. And once he had success, it was really easy.
1: Interesting. You mentioned him feeling not having the need to feel pressured for other companies that you've invested in. How do you balance between giving advice and then just blatantly basically telling the founder what to do?
0: If I have to tell the founder what to do, I think the company's already doomed, right? So I've had to do that. But when that happens, I historically, the company's doomed. Like that that's a... And so that's a sign. Like now it's a pattern I pay attention to. If it gets to that point, the company is not savable. And so usually what I do is I, I go into... Now I go into a process called view. It's like something I picked up in my own growth, which is be vulnerable with the founder, be impartial, right? Have empathy. Am I spelling that right? Be partial, have empathy, and be curious. So a lot of what I do is ask questions, right? When I'm with a founder, I ask questions about why they kind of chose that direction or why they said no to something. And in the process of being curious, you tend to get to the right answer. And so instead of telling, I ask. And that is my main approach now is to ask. If I have to tell, again, it's like, We've, I've waited, I haven't asked the right questions, right? And and so typically, I've lately I've avoided telling anyone anything because I've asked the right questions or the founder's already just kind of on the right path to begin with.
1: You've been on both sides of the table, the entrepreneurial table and the investor table. What do you see is probably the biggest mistake first-time entrepreneurs make and then the biggest mistake first-time investors make?
0: Mm. The biggest mistake most first-time founders make and is one that I made is trying to do too much, right? That's a huge mistake. It's so hard to focus, but trying to do too much, that's one. Over-optimizing for valuation is actually a mistake on both sides. Whereas if the partnership's right, like if you're wildly successful, no one's going to care about whether your valuation was 10 or 15 million or 15 or 20 million, it doesn't matter. And if you fail, obviously it's not going to matter. So, I think both sides over optimize for valuation. In the venture side, there is some, like, it's less about valuation, but for us, we do want to own a certain percentage of the company, but we have flex on how much we invest to get that percentage. So, valuation is not always, it's not really the, the issue there. It's more, is there enough room for us to invest? But again, on the founder side, I think it's not knowing which decisions are the right decisions. So, you end up like hyperventilating on every decision. That's one big issue. And then the second is, is really like trying to do too much. As an investor, not moving fast enough, like, like analysis paralysis, because we're at this early stage. Like so much of the of what we're doing is art, right? It's artistry. Cause we're not, there aren't a lot of numbers to evaluate, right? We're not doing late stage. And so it's really reminding ourselves that it's about is the most important thing we need to evaluate is the founder. Right. Are they going to make the mistakes that I just said they should avoid making? Right. Right. Are they open to questioning? Not even feedback, questioning, just open to being questioned. And the last is, does the founder really know what he or she doesn't know? That's one I spent a lot of time on. So it's like it's going to sound weird when I say this, but does the founder know his or her blind
1: spots? You mentioned decision making, how they might be not being able to make the right decisions or know what decisions to make. How can entrepreneurs learn how to make decisions?
0: Well, I mean, if the ones that are that are open to it, like I, I love investing with other VCs that have been founders. Right? We've been through our version of what this founder's been through, and so if if the founder is surrounding him or herself with investors who have been in their shoes, like that's a great place to start because you've got this wealth of knowledge like that's around you that's incented in, you know, to help you become successful. So I think the best way to learn about decision-making is really like from the, there, there really are three, I say there are three ways. There's like learn from the founders that are investing. In you if you're lucky enough to have founders that invest in you, there's no short changing the personal work that you should be doing as a CEO to understand your biases and your own patterns. Like that's, that's vital. Like, we at, at Freestyle, I developed this, this policy, like where we would send any founder who wanted to go to this personal growth retreat that I did called Hoffman. And all Hoffman exists, it purely exists to expose the patterns from your childhood that are influencing you today. If you can understand that, then you kind of see your biases. So I think that that's huge. Is understand your own personal biases so you can make better decisions.
1: Yeah, you mentioned self-awareness. I think that's really important for entrepreneurs and especially in business. Transitioning to climactic here, you mentioned in our email exchange, one of the biggest reasons tech investors are jumping into climate tech is for the legacy aspect. There are many industries you could have chosen and issues that face the world today. What specifically drew you to the climate aspect of the problem?
0: It's the existential problem that makes everything worse if we don't solve it. Like all the other issues we're talking about that we we all talk about, social injustice, poverty, disease, inequality, like everything is made worse if the planet starts to fail us. Like it, it's, so it's kind of the cause of causes for that I look at. And so that's one of the reasons I chose it. It also is an area that I know can be dramatically well served with technology, with better technology. So it's like, okay, I I personally can make a difference here. And I believe it is the most important cause of our day.
1: Some of the entrepreneurs and companies in Climactic you can't talk about, but for those that you can, out of the investments before the fund that have been contributed to Climactic and the fund investments, what company are you most excited about and why?
0: Well I mean there they're still so early. It's, you know, investors obviously hate being asked that question, Seamus. You know, you know they hate it, yeah. um, uh, which is why you're asking me. So I have three kids, and and at any one moment in time, one of them is my favorite.
1: <laughs> but same over time, same goes for my brothers. <laughs> right. Exactly.
0: But over time, no one's like they're they're all my favorite. But but at any one moment in time, so. One of our companies is having a, a moment right now. It's an exciting moment, and it's Lightship. And Lightship is really the first electric RV. They just released their prototype, and it's amazing. When you If you take a look at it online, it's the first RV designed from the ground up to be electric. So it's lighter. The roof is all solar cells. It has its own battery. It will eventually be bidirectional with like your electric truck. So it's brand new software and you can bring that into a camping environment for many, many days. It's really exciting to see that whole world being reimagined. And, and they have, I don't know if it's public, but like in the many, many tens of millions of pre-orders. So it's exciting. It's really exciting to see their success. So I'm really excited about Lightship and the work they're doing. I guess Weavegrid is really making a difference with utilities and as obviously more and more EVs jump on the platform, you could see that over time, if is has millions of EVs across the country on the platform, that those vehicles can provide a solution to energy storage that is cheaper, more accessible than anything that we've ever seen because batteries are expensive. But if it's your battery in your car, right, which is 90, 90 kilowatt hours and growing, versus a power wall, which is 13 and a half kilowatt hours. You can see how valuable, imagine if every EV is also serving as a place where energy is stored, that's that's being generated by renewables. So you've got all this renewable energy. And now I've got an EV and I can charge my EV free if I put it on the network. That's massive. You now have a free energy storage resource that didn't exist before versus having to buy all new batteries just for energy storage. So we've been heading down that path. I'm excited about that. Ruby Labs is one of the few ways that the apparel industry is going to hit its net zero goals as, as they scale, and they you know they grab they they capture with off the shelf technology CO2 from a smokestack, but then they take that CO2 and they use an enzymatic process on site at the factory to turn that into glucose, which then they turn into rayon goes really polyester. Um, so it's the first carbon negative clothing material that we've ever seen, which is really exciting. One other company I'll mention. So Renoster is, wow, Mac has spent all their whole podcast talking about Renoster. So Renoster basically is a, if you look at the history of carbon offset projects, which are really nature-based carbon offset projects, like forests are the, are the most common, like where, where we protect an acre in the Amazon and that acreage continues to sequester carbon for you know, for for as long as it's protected, those are offset projects, and they're all kinds. They're not just forests; they're mangroves and seagrass. And nature is is by far the lowest cost way to to store carbon. If I were to ask you how many carbon offset projects have ever been created historically, most people would guess a number that is radically different than what has actually happened, because there are there literally are a hundred thousand plus projects that could be that could be presented as carbon offset projects but because of one nonprofit we've artificially constrained that number to 1200 yeah. and that nonprofit is a company called vera vera recently has been got, has their ceo resigned their projects have been attacked they have been they do have some good projects too but they have really held the planet back and renoster basically is a is a more transparent commercial solution to really unleash tens of thousands of carbon offset projects so that we can actually heal the planet. And so Rhinostra was founded by Saif, who's the CEO, and their chief scientist is Elias, who was the chief scientist at Pachama. And the two of them have the right mix of science meets commercial, and they have the right approach. And we're excited to announce that a week after, (laughs) uh, a week before the show airs. And it's going to be really exciting to see what they can do now that they have capital, because there is no solution to keeping the planet from warming under two degrees that does not involve nature based sequestration projects.
1: One of the things that comes up when we talk about climate is the impact and and measuring impact. The due diligence you do for a company to assess their financial performance is essentially the same as it was at freestyle but you do have to do an additional round of due diligence on the impact what does that due diligence look like and how do you measure impact
0: it's a great question and we get asked that a lot from folks who who, who invest in us so at the seed stage a lot of the impact assessment is artistry and qualitative so We'll look at you know a company like Renoster, and it's obviously very clear, right? That's all they, their whole. They're an easy one to evaluate, right. and it's just like the average project size, how much carbon. But you know, you still have to figure out attribution because there are many players in the preparation of a, of a project for the market and the sales of those carbon offsets. And so we know they're doing good, we know they're having impact, but we don't actually have to figure out. We don't have to quantify that at this stage. It would be nearly impossible. For a lot of software in the climate tech world, you you have to identify that they will have impact, but the actual amount of the impact is very challenging. And so what, what we do is we just assess qualitatively that if they do A, B, and C, that they will have impact. We don't have to measure the actual amount of impact they'll have because it's impossible. You know, when we looked at investing in Weavegrid, we invested alongside Bill Gates's nonprofit, Breakthrough. We invested alongside Breakthrough. And Breakthrough actually went in and did this really complex analysis of how Weavegrid's technology would mean that utilities would have to buy less storage, less infrastructure, and that would translate into less of an impact on the planet and blah, blah, blah. Valuable, they did it. We would never have done that. We looked at it and said, "Yeah, it makes sense that if we makes it more cost effective for EV charging. That's going to have a positive impact on the planet." That's really all we needed to do. And most of what we do at the seed stage is that. And that's true for a lot of our our colleagues, like Congruent and and obvious ventures. We kind of all look at the world in the same way. We have to feel great about the qualitative, but to quantify, especially to quantify software and its role really hard. I'm open to new ways of of looking at attribution, but I think it, it's, we're going to be in the qualitative space for quite a while. Got we it. also have like, you know, it has to pass the smell test of our other partner, Paul Hawken. Paul's like the godfather of climate change. He wrote the two reference Bibles, yep. uh, regeneration. And so every deal we do, Paul does his smell test too, alongside our qualitative, and it has to pass that as well.
1: We've talked about climate solutions. Um, one of the topics we brought up with Molly Wood, who was formerly at This weekend Startups and Jason Calacanis' launch fund, is how friendly climate solutions actually are. In Chile, Salar, mining activities consumed around 65% of the region's water. That's now having a big impact on local farmers, and in addition, it does cause some pollution to the environment. Now, given it is significantly less than using fossil fuels, but do you think there is a way to be 100% sustainable without having negative side effects during the process, or is solving the climate change crisis really just slowing down the rate at which we hurt our environment?
0: I think it's it's if we want to keep the planet from warming more than one and a half degrees, we're not talking about never emitting any carbon. We're not talking about never using water. It's trying to keep it to roll it back and then keep it flat. Right. There's a, there's an amount of of emissions that the planet can handle, right? It's not only it, it's only in the last like 20, 30 years that we've really Done the damage that we're all dealing with today. I mean, there was a period of time we had the industrial revolution, we did, we definitely were emitting carbon, but it's the quantity that we're doing now that's the problem. So we need to roll back how much we're emitting. For us to get to a like a fully zero emissions environment, I don't know many people who are like outside of science fiction writers that are that are focused on that. I mean, I would love for it to happen. But we do have this thing called nature, and nature is pretty good at sequestering carbon if we actually keep it within a, within a, a band. And I think we're just, most of us in the climate tech world are trying to keep it within a band. When it comes to uh, mining, especially mining materials that go into batteries, we are just at the beginning of learning how to recycle batteries. And there are companies that have raised billions of dollars trying to figure that out. We need to be really good at circularity. So that's a little different than your question. We need to really be good at circularity and so that we need to take everything that we produce, everything that we mine, everything we manufacture, and be amazing at at reselling it and reselling it and reselling it until it can't be resold anymore and then recycling those materials into new products. That circularity is what we're all after, less about, like again, getting to the zero emissions world. I think that we most of us have come off that, that hope that we're going to get to that point, but we don't need to, to, to really save the planet. We just need to do a better job of circularity. Like we're, we spend a lot of time in the recycling space. And if you look at, you know, Jazz Fest is an example. I just went to Jazz Fest as an example of, it's emblematic of most music festivals. They produce 200,000 pounds of waste every day. Wow. You know that 200,000 pounds of waste. If we could only harness that waste, if we could recycle that waste, both the food waste, the plastic waste, the aluminum waste, the cardboard waste, and we could actually have an ecosystem to do all that and then reuse it, that would go a long way towards the sustainability you're talking about. But we do it by creating circularity. And so we are like, if you look at, we are like in a, you know in nursery school when it comes to circularity you can just go to like a, a festival at the end of a concert and just see the waste on the ground. Most of that doesn't end up in the right place. it's been landfill. I focus more on circularity and trying to to use the waste that we're creating to actually create new products versus and if we're lucky, like the car industry has actually a really is a really interesting barometer for what is possible in other areas. Three out of every four cars that are sold every year are sold as used. It's an amazing thing, right? If we could apply anything close to that, to the world of CPG, we would be a long way towards the kind of circularity that I'd like to see us create.
1: And in terms of circularity, how far away do you think we are from having an economy in a world where we're at that levels, where the temperature and the environment remains at that flat level instead of continuing to increase? <laughs> far
0: far definitely far I mean climate climate Tech climate Tech versus clean Tech is still in its infancy like we're there are success stories right we're all there are great there are success stories in in the world of climate Tech but it's still really early I mean it like the way that I will the way I look at it so we back I mentioned this before I was lucky to be a founder in uh, during the era of the digitization of everything, right? It was an amazing time to be there. And back then we had like digital groups were set up, right? We didn't, and and everything was separate. And then over time, everything merged. Like there's no more di- digital group. No, you're like, you're a product manager. You're responsible for the offline, the online. There's no differentiating. You don't have specialists, right? Like that are separate from the from the product that is being managed. In sustainability right now, we have sustainability groups, right? A lot of it, a lot of the same things are happening in the decarbonization of everything. But over time, you're going to have the merging of like the chief supply chain officer will also be the chief sustainability officer. That's going to happen over time. And sustainability will be part of everything that you do at a company versus its own kind of silo group. And, And when that happens, then you know we're like a good chunk of the way there.
1: Gotcha. And before we wrap it up with the takeaways, I want to get into a couple slightly deeper questions. Sitting here today, do you have any regrets?
0: So many. What do you I continue to do? All podcasts on mistakes I made, regrets I have. I mean, of course I do. The more mistakes that I made that I'm looking at and say, oh, I would do that different. I'm not hard on myself on making mistakes, but I think, you know. It's funny. I don't ever single them out because I'm like I make mistakes every single day. And do I, but your question was about regrets. Yes, I have one big regret that I think about a lot, and it was a great learning experience for me, a very costly learning experience for me. So back, I guess it was in was it 2009? I think right around 2009 2010. Garrett Camp, who who created Uber, Dave and I and Garrett knew each other. Dave Samuel and I, and we were talking about what he was doing with, you know, Uber. What was it called back then? I forget. But whatever, whatever Uber, it's black. It was called something else.
1: Uber but, cab, I
0: think. Something like that. And we were Dave and I were also good friends with Travis, and and we were working with Travis. Travis, we went way back. Travis had a, a streaming kind of like company called Scour that he had started, and Travis and I had talked about that. Quite a bit, and then he was looking for his next thing. And we, he was advising a company of ours. We brought him in to advise a company called Formspring. Formspring was like the fastest company, third million users ever. It was like a an autonomous social network. And Travis had an offer to become CEO of Formspring, or to become CEO of Uber. We really wanted Travis with the CEO of Formspring, but he said, no, he became the CEO of Uber. And then he and Garrett were like, hey, you and Dave should lead our seed round, right? We're going to do, You only. I know you only invest 100K, but you can lead our seed round with 100K and then we'll, we'll. you'll help us pull it together. And we said, great, let's look at it. And we spent time on it. And unfortunately for us, we met a guy whose last name was Spinner. We met him because we bought Spinner.com from him. And Spinner, he had started the, a version of Uber before Uber, and the city had sued him successfully and shut him down. We, when we sold our company to Sony, we got sued. Sold Crackle to Sony, we got sued, and we were really gun shy about businesses that have lots of lawsuits. And so he we went back to Travis and and Garrett, and we said, you know what, we we can't do it. It's there's too much. There's just too much risk of being sued, so we're not going to do it. That hundred k. Not that I count, <laughs> 500 million today.
1: Wow. That's so, crazy.
0: That's a big regret. But like most regrets, like, yeah, we had, we had, did the best we could with this, with the wind we had at the time. And, and who knows, we've done that, then maybe I wouldn't be working with the climate. You know, I can't imagine anything else right now. And so things work out. I'm doing fine. But that, that's a regret.
1: I think some government department in New York even threatened the Uber team for 90 days in jail for every day they the Reminded operation. So it's crazy. They were able to get through that. And uh, as we wrap it up here, yeah. where can the audience learn more about Climactic and what do you see as the future of climate?
0: So for Climactic, you can follow Climactic VC on Twitter. You can follow me, Josh Media on Twitter. Um, we have those same handles on LinkedIn. We use both for kind of like LinkedIn's for more serious stuff, Twitter's for, you know, for more engaging, interactive stuff. You can find us both there. Our website is obviously climactic.vc. And uh, we have enough cash to, we're excited to be funding startups and we're investing out of the fund. And And uh, if you have a a software or low-tech hardware plus software startup that that is focused on the enterprise mobility, we'd love to talk to you.
1: Awesome. I'll have a link posted to Climactic in the episode description down below. Feel free to check it out. And that wraps up for today's episode. I greatly appreciate it. And Josh, thanks for joining. I appreciate it.